0: We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen. I think something is happening.
1: Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy your song. We move fast. Can you take it?
2: No matter what you do now, you're still part of everything that's happening.
0: Used to be in silent pictures, used to be big
2: I am big
1: It's the pictures that got small uh-huh. We need more heart in motion pictures You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow Listen to me, Hatcher You gotta tell him I just want to say one word to you Just one word Are you listening? The Boulevard of Bright- we're making another movie this is the one i'll be remembered for. welcome to the sword cinema podcast this week we're going to be taking a look at 2006's apocalypto written by mel gibson and farhad safinia and directed by mel gibson here's a clip That was a clip from Mel Gibson's Apocalypto, which came in hot on the heels of his massive Passion of the Christ, which we did earlier, uh, in la- or late last year, Rick, I don't remember. Joining me, of course, to talk about this is Ricky D.
0: Yeah, I'm actually watching a movie right now as we record a podcast, so I'm very ill-prepared. It's in the background. I don't I don't need to have the sound on, right? Because it's not like I understand their language. I just need subtitles.
1: You really don't need to have the sound on. I was watching the director's commentary the other night just to see if there's anything interesting in it other than Mel Gibson cracking jokes about uh, tapered testicles. But it's visually so good. We'll get into this. Visually so good. I, I really didn't need to hear any of what they were saying. Uh, also joining us to talk about this is Simon Howell. What up? Simon, did you watch the commentary?
2: No. No. Uh, no, I didn't watch the movie. I'm just here to listen to you guys talk about it.
1: Okay.
0: Can I? Can I just start off by saying that the story about the cow is like the most craziest story that came out of like the making of this
1: movie. The story about the cow? <laughs> I don't know the story of the cow.
0: There's a freaking cow in the movie. Like it was, an, it was like an extra, like one of the you know animal extras, whatever you call them. And so the cow's on set, and the cow was like crossing the river, like right at the top of the waterfall, and it got swept by the rapids. And it went flying <laughs> down the fucking waterfall. Oh, oh, no. Like the cast and crew, they were shocked. They were like, holy shit. The cow just like, went down the waterfall and the cow survived. Someone on set actually dove in to go save the cow. And apparently the cow just got out of the water, just started eating grass. And it was totally
1: cool. <laughs> a normal thing that used to happen back in that Nature era. Nature finds a way. That cow was committed to the character. <laughs> Um, all right, so for anybody who doesn't know, this is the story of a uh, well, a young Mayan man who lives in a quiet little village, and he and his entire village are kidnapped by the big city folk, taken to be sacrificed, have their hearts ripped out, and their heads cut off, and he manages to get away. And so half the movie is them chasing him through the forest. Well,
0: this movie is pretty much the passion of the Christ with an extra half an hour action scene. And I'm not even joking when I say that. The well, two I movies mean, if, are so similar.
1: If you're talking level of violence for sure, I don't know if structurally they're the same. This is a very this is much more traditionally structured for sure. I mean this but, is but, basically but
0: but like if you actually look at the structure, this might sound stupid, but if you were to take like the actual scene cards, like not forget the dialogue and the characters, just the scene cards and go scene one, scene two, scene three, scene four, like the structure, it's the exact same movie. Like there's so many similarities between the two movies. I'm not even joking. Even the camera shots, Patrick, like I was thinking about um we'll talk about this i guess later but the the sequence where they start sacrificing everybody and they cut off their heads and the way he frames a shot and even the way they put their bodies down on top of the rock and there's that point of view of them looking at everyone from like but they're hanging upside down uh the torture sequences the scenes in which they're transporting the prisoners to wherever it is they're going i forget where it is they're going but you know what i'm saying like there's a lot of similarities between the two movies you could tell it's the same director
1: yeah well i think with gibson's movies you can tell a mel gibson movie because he loves tortured main characters and he definitely has some similar themes to the passion of the christ and stuff that you could find that he was sort of developing in braveheart too Uh, He didn't go so much into that into Hacksaw Ridge, I think, because he was still he was trying to make something a little more mainstream that could make money. But there is there's still some element of that tortured soul in Hacksaw Ridge as well.
0: Both movies aren't in English. Even the two leads, their facial expressions, the way to act, the way they perform, I find they're so similar.
2: I I think it's odd, Patrick, that you think that uh, Gibson's motif is like emotional pain. Because it's clear to me that his motif is physical pain.
1: Oh, I didn't mean emotionally tortured. I meant physically tortured. You mean physically tortured? (laughs) Although I I do think in Gibson's world there is a, uh, you know, he is a strict Catholic and he has the guilt thing in in Catholicism has completely, like, that dominates his work. So Mm -hmm. I do think there is an element of emotional torture, but he loves, I think he loves expressing emotional torture through physical torture in his movies.
2: Yeah, um, you know, I have to say that Gibson's Catholicism and, you know, anti-Semitism and all that stuff is is always discussed in in relation to his movies. I have to say that as a lapsed Catholic myself, I think maybe that's the reason I feel a bit at a distance from his movies, because mm-hmm. there's they're so fucking
0: Catholic and it's just a little bit hard for me to deal with sometimes. But that's what I'm saying. Like, I kind of feel like this movie is very religious.
2: Oh, it's extremely religious. Yes, his movie. I mean, I've only seen this and I've, I've actually never seen Passion of the Christ just because, you know, again, it is. I just um, said. It's very good. Like, no uh, joke. I was pretty but, impressed
0: with
1: that film. It's more violent than this movie is. <laughs> uh,
2: I did see Braveheart a very long time ago. I don't really feel a burning desire to revisit it, to be honest. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, th- th- this one definitely it's Catholic as hell.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's in the background of this one. I do think he succeeded in what he set up to do in just making a simplified, boiled-down action movie, which is you know why he wanted to write this in the first place. I don't know that he goes—there's always a subtext of Catholicism in all of Gibson's movies. I don't know that religion is a main focus of this one, or even you know faith, although a little bit, maybe. Mm. Um I I do think he's trying to say some other things with this. He definitely goes really, really hard on classism in this movie.
0: But but the fact that they are sacrificing people because they think the, the human sacrifice will please the gods and therefore will... But remove do, the virus that's killing they, everybody.
1: Do they think that? And that's where I think well, Gibson's may, not, saying maybe here. We I, I don't know if the people after...
0: doing the sacrifice are, but the people who are, you know, their followers, the the people standing beneath them cheering, believe it.
1: Yeah, but that's what I think very important. I think that it's important to put this into context: is that whether he's talking about religion or whether he's talking about politics and and civilization, because he focuses a lot in those scenes and uh, on on the high priestess and the king who pass each other sly glances while they look down at the populace, populace eating this all up this is him saying these people are completely lying to you like they they have they don't believe this for a second but they're going through with it because they know that it keeps them in power that to me is what i'm getting out of that scene more than any religious faith he's not going after religion anyway i mean religion was a part of that culture and he just uses it to express his his point that the the haves are absolutely using the have-nots in every way that they possibly can.
0: But the people below believe it. They sure. believe that this human sacrifice is going to potentially save them from the virus, the plague that's killing everyone.
1: But is that the focus of the of the scene?
0: That's not the focus, but it's there.
2: Patrick, I think you've inadvertently clarified for me what I do and don't like about this movie. Um, I really love it as an action movie. Uh, I think... As soon as the chase really starts in earnest, like 45 minutes in or whatever, um, I think that's when the movie really starts to sing for me. Where it sort of falls flat is, I think it's sort of a melding. You were talking about how he wanted to make a a stripped-down sort of chase movie. And I wish he'd made a stripped-down chase movie. Unfortunately, what he made is sort of a a blend of a stripped-down chase movie with sort of flashes of a historical epic.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Uh, And it does have this kind of grander scale Which is when you start to think about, okay, what is Mel Gibson saying with this movie or trying to say with this movie? And honestly, I'm not even sure if he knew because you're just talking about classism, which I think is kind of strange because like the the, like the concept of class didn't really formally even exist. Uh, We don't know what exactly what separates one tribe from another other than one is sort of, you know, in a in a what would be I guess you might you might call it an urban setting versus a rural setting in terms of the the village versus the jungle but um i don't know these nods at these political divisions and uh religious manipulation and uh you know combined with what happens in the end i i just i couldn't get a bead on like what he was trying to say about human nature or about like the mayans specifically or you know european conquest or not like i don't know it all felt very muddled
1: so i think one of the things that has this movie like as people confused about this movie is Mel Gibson himself. And the problem is this movie came out six months after he had had his infamous uh, pullover. His, his, his
2: little whoopsie do.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think that blurred how people looked at this movie. <clears throat> but I think if you look at how other filmmakers looked at this movie and see what they said about it, like Martin Scorsese, he talked about how he thought this movie was a masterpiece and he thought he thought it was about how civilization needs violence in order to perpetuate itself. Um, that's definitely in there. Showing how, in order to get bigger, they're going to have to step on little people. And I, if you, I, I think that the whole thing with the Europeans coming in the end that also threw everybody off, as if that was the ultimate lesson. That is a simple aside; it means nothing. It's just signaling the, the downfall of this, this society. That's all. It's, Wait, that's all it's there on. for. It actually has no thematic value in the movie whatsoever, and it doesn't matter that they are Europeans. It could have been anybody. The, the fact of the matter is that he was trying to show how a society, why a society crumbled, and it's because it was eating itself. Wait, because wait. it was using itself. It didn't matter that it was Europeans, but everybody, you know, immediately read something into that.
2: Well, how would you not read something into that? Oh,
1: it's easy. I mean, I don't, I've never looked at that as any, having any significance whatsoever, other than that signals the end of their civilization. we well, you talking all... about
0: when the, the Spanish arrived towards the yeah. end of the film, which I'm assuming yeah. is a Spanish?
1: Yeah, yeah. To me, the only significance is that marks the end of the movie. Like that's the end of the that's the end of the civilization. That's the end of the story of these people that that wanted to to that killed so much that they they crumbled.
0: That's the part of the movie, and I want to talk about this after the break. But I guess I'm going to jump ship here. That's the part of the movie. The last ten minutes that I would change, though. I don't. Is this the right term? The Deuce Ex Machina sequence in which something unexplainable happens in order to resolve a problem like all of a sudden the spanish ships arrive out of nowhere there was no build-up or lead-up or hint of europeans in this movie up until that very last 10 minutes that's the part i didn't like like and it's funny because i i compare it to the passion of christ which is a movie about like religion and god and jesus christ and in that movie you know there's a resurrection scene which lasts like a good like what two minutes It comes out of nowhere, right? The entire film is about them torturing and killing the dude, but he does add the resurrection scene. At the end of this film, he does the exact same thing, but instead of Jesus Christ, it's like the Spanish ships that show up out of nowhere that sort of like help save uh, Jaguar.
1: Well, see, now that's another thing. I, I think we're reading this completely different. I don't see them as being a deus ex machina. They don't save him. I think Jaguar Paw was perfectly capable of handling himself. He had killed everybody else in that crew. There were only two guys left. It's that something stopped them. They all stopped. I'm saying, in in terms of
0: like the actual script where he just decides to write in these Spanish ships shown up up out of nowhere. Like, I didn't think it was needed.
1: Well, and again, that's where we we see that I don't think that he tacked it on. I think it absolutely needs to be in there because it's not about Europeans. It's about signaling the end. The whole movie is about the end of a civilization. The movie starts with a quote about society destroying itself from within well, and i that think society that's... gets is going to be destroyed what the the, the the arrival of the europeans mark the beginning of the the destruction of that society from without
0: i get what you're saying but the reason why it throws me off is because i think the last line in the movie is he says we're going to find a new beginnings. but i guess i get i understand what you're saying
1: in the forest yeah he, she says where and he says in the forest simon you were gonna you were gonna throw something in
0: Oh, I was just going
2: to say, I, I think th- that's really the angle from which, like, I wasn't, like, offended by it or confused or anything. I just think that the the angle of, well, the society collapsed from within, therefore it could be taken from without. Um, I mean, I think th- that's a fine thesis. I just didn't. Uh, the movie offers such a, such a weird glancing glimpse of, like, okay, well, what what are these forces that tore it asunder from within? Like I never really got a sense of what those were from the movie, which is fine. If all it is, is a chase film uh, because again, that aspect totally works for me. But uh, in terms of trying to paint a broader picture of the society and what brought it down, I thought that's the part that just doesn't come
0: through for me. I think Simon and I have an issue with the end of the film for completely different reasons. Cause for me, it's not about what it means for the film for these people and society and them rebuilding in the end of their civilization thematically what it means it's the idea that from a screenplay point of view it came out of nowhere it wasn't like earlier in the movie there was some sort of like hint that i don't know the spanish are on their way we see the ship from afar if you look closely or something i'm not sure if that's needed but i'm just saying that like simon said if it was just a straight-up action thriller like a hunt in the jungle then that would have been cool. But because they tack on that ending and there is no, what's the word I'm looking for? No buildup to it.
1: I, I understand what you're saying. I just don't agree. I guess that there is no buildup. I think it's been building for the whole movie to that point. I, I I think that's why I think the ending works really, really well. And I think it's powerful. I also think like too many people read, and I'm not saying you guys are doing this, but too many people read this as being a historical, like, document like they like they were trying to recreate something the actual inv- you know invasion of the europeans they're not they're, this is a very anachronistic movie that takes bits and pieces from the mayan culture all throughout time uh, and and lumps them all together in one thing a lot of times for aesthetic reasons but also for thematic reasons because obviously this this movie was gibson's attempt at making a commentary on modern day times Not so much a commentary or a historical uh, drama about those times.
2: So my question is, what is the commentary? So
0: Hold on. Sorry, can I just cut in really quick before you get lost in commentary? My problem, though, Patrick, is that in the last 10, 15 minutes has an action thriller. Like, forget about the commentary and themes and what it's about, et cetera, et cetera, historical context. It's too Hollywood. The dude like barely escapes, like he almost gets his head chopped off. There's a slow motion shot of him sliding, like he's like sliding to like home base for like the home run. (laughs) He's about to get his head chopped off. And then like all these little things happen that saves him. And it felt too much like a Hollywood action film, like a video game. And that's why I did not like the last 10 minutes. And then the ships appear. So it just adds on this whole coinkie link. Uh, let's just do whatever we can to get this guy to survive in the last 10 minutes. Like it was well, too Hollywood for me.
1: So that's something we can definitely talk about was the filmmaking during the, the, the action scenes. And at the end, um, which I, 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 again, I'll, I'll, I'll disagree with the fact that that felt video gamey, or I think he Gibson's always had his characters survive, like have amazing stamina. And that's the the part that maybe I don't buy the most is that this guy could run that much, but gibson's done this before and you know jesus walking up the the hill the, just the the stamina just seems impossible not just for him but for everybody all the other guys that were getting crucified that day um i i just but as far as the actual move like that slide that was a deliberate slide to avoid getting your head chopped off you could almost say that the other guy was lucky that he even struck him in the first place um i don't think it was l- luck or a hollywood thing that that the club missed his head he slid so that the club would miss his head like he did that on purpose and then it just happened to graze it his head a little bit you know um, ricky
2: you you kind of inadvertently uh, brought up another thing that i wanted to mention that i i don't i'm not even necessarily complaining i just think it's interesting there's a tension in this film between um like how hardcore is it willing to go versus like coming up against like you said that sort of hollywood flavor and i i find that's constantly in tension throughout the whole movie uh, in a sometimes really interesting way like there's all these sequence there's this you know these there's several straight sequences of grotesque violence, torture, death uh it's it basically becomes like I don't know like a it, it gets real grim for a while and all the while you've got this like very ornate James Horner score which is just make making it very clear sorry. It's 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 making it very clear that this is a Hollywood production, and then of course later you do get these sort of more Hollywood moments as uh, as Jaguar Paw ends up having a whole lot of plot armor uh, or whatever you want to call it. And I, I, I anyway, I just I found that the the sort of grislier, more horror-y aspects of the film are, are kind of always pushing up against the sort of more slick, streamlined, uh, like I guess Hollywood friendly, audience friendly moments in a in a really interesting way.
0: So Patrick clearly loved this movie, and I'm gonna reiterate that I love this movie. I think this is a great movie. It's the second time I've seen it. And I want to watch it again and again. It's the type of movie I would watch again and again because it's 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 just exciting from start to finish, even if it's maybe 50 minutes too long. But I'm watching it right now in the background as I'm talking to you dudes. And there's just too many coincidental things that happen at the end of the film in the last 10 minutes. It all just seems rushed. Like all of a sudden it starts to rain and then she's drowning. And then she has the baby. Like And then like what's-his-face <laughs> um, gets whatever killed by the booby trap which we see earlier on in the film and then the, the spanish ships show up like it's no, all that wasn't... too much for for a span of like about 15 minutes so that's why the last 50 minutes of the movie and again i'm, I'm jumping ahead because this is one of our questions after the break that's what i would change i wouldn't have it all so coincidental last minute kind of like and maybe that's not the proper term to use simon the deuce ex machina whatever but it kind of felt like God just all of a sudden made everything happen to him and everything just went right so this guy can survive the last fifty minutes of this movie. And in the most kind of like like what are the odds kind of thing. Like what are the odds that this this would happen, this would happen, this would happen, this would happen, this, this, and this, and this, and that. And everything ends up perfect for him at the end of the film.
1: Well, okay, I think that's also set up quite nicely in the movie because he's prophesied to do this but the little girl the little girl says that this is going to happen so these coincidental things they are it, it fits a little more in line now I would say the, the booby trap at the end that is not a coincidence remember this is his forest and he leads that guy there.
0: and they showed at the beginning of the movie that I like That's a that's an example of great screenplay writing right or maybe great direction a bit of both I love that
1: I, I will agree that, like, he it, does, it can at times feel like he's getting exactly what he needs. But I think there's the right mix of industriousness as well. I think with, like, him seeing the toad and then figuring out I, I can use blow darts to, to get this guy. Or, you know, all, all sorts of things. Maybe running from the panther was probably my least favorite one of those. Because, boy, does he run from that, you know, panther or leopard or whatever it is for a long time. He runs for a long time. That thing would have caught him by... <laughs> I <laughs> know, but
0: but, but but the sequence where he where he he slides underneath the the guy when he's trying to strike him with I don't know some kind of like battle it's axe.
1: It's like a sword club.
0: Yeah, he he films it and he there's like a triple take and a quadruple take and slow motion. It's like it feels at odds with the rest of the film. Like why did Mel Gibson all of a sudden decide to direct this one specific sequence? Like he's Zack Snyder.
1: <laughs> well, okay, so Gibson, and this is going to go into, I want to comment on what Simon had said about Gibson, this film feeling like it's torn between Hollywood and sort of a, a you know, I don't know if you want to say it. Almost indie. a
2: grindhouse film at times. Yeah,
1: so that's every one of Gibson's movies I've always felt. There's always a tension between him sort of straddling the line between tumbling off into, into space where he could go completely whack job. I, I, you felt that even in Hacksaw Ridge. And I think I, I wrote the review for that movie a, a few years ago, and that was one of the things that I noticed about it. Like, it just seemed like that movie wanted to go super dark, super grim, and super weird. Uh, and there's a couple of sequences in there that are that are very horror movie-ish. But then it pulls back, and it has to stay what it is. And I, I've, I've always felt like Gibson's movies have that. And I love that tension. That's why I... I, I back when he made this movie, I thought he was one of... The five best directors on the planet, or at least to me, most interesting directors on the planet. Maybe I shouldn't say best, but he was one of the most interesting. Uh, we kind of lost lost those movie, you know, future movies from him, and I don't know what he's really going to do with his career now. Well, he's doing <clears> the Passion of <throat> Christ too, right? Yeah, which to me is not super interesting. A- at the time that he made Apocalypto, he had made he made The Man Without a Face, which is what it is it's fine. It's a you know an actor's first directing shot, I guess. Um, but then he made Braveheart, The Passion, and Apocalypto. And to me, I was like, whoa, this guy's very, very different from everybody else out here. He's doing weird things. Now, that doesn't mean it always works 100%, but he was extremely fascinating. And that tension, Simon, is part of the reason why I, I I love that he's, every one of his movies seems like he's, a, it's doing a balancing act. It's trying to do, it's Gibson's struggle. His own struggle seems to be coming out through his movies. Uh, he has a very dark, grim side that could go into weird places. And it seems like he is always raining it back.
0: So, you know, when you said that there is this prophecy surrounding the main character here, Jaguar Paw... That is why I can sit back, relax and not be bothered by the many unrealistic things that happens with this man, right? Like the fact that he can outrun a black Panther, the fact that he can jump off a waterfall and survive, the fact that everything that the little girl says at the start of the film ends up actually happening later on. Again, isn't that a similarity to The Passion of Christ? Like, am I just, like, nuts here? Because I feel like it's the same movie. Like, until the the actual 30-minute chase sequence at the end of the film. It's like, if there was a 30-minute chase sequence added onto The Passion of Christ or Jesus Christ is running from the Romans, it would be the exact same movie.
1: No, it's just a 45-minute sequence at the end of him walking up the hill, <laughs> dropping his cross, like, six times. Uh, <laughs> which, if you remember during the podcast, I love. I think The Passion of the Christ is a great movie, but it's not nearly as rewatchable as Apocalypto. But I, I that ending could have been... That ending could have been shortened. This chase, I felt, was, was just fine. I never felt like it was going on too long.
0: I think I would have liked the ending of this film better had she not given birth right then and there, had maybe it started raining a little earlier on, because it also felt like the cave got flooded with water a little too fast. You know, little things like that. Had the European ships not appeared right away out of nowhere, there's just again too many quinky things happening at the last minute. But can I just talk about what I really, 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 really like about this film? It's Rudy Youngblood. Yeah, he plays thank Jaguar Paw. If there is one reason why I would watch this movie over and over and over again, it's because of his performance. He's such a likable character, he's such a great protagonist, he's such an amazing hero like we've watched plenty of action thrillers, lots of films like this to take place in a jungle, be it predator or Rambo or whatever. But this might be my favorite performance out of any movie similar to that. You know what I mean? Like he's just amazing in this film.
2: Uh, he's great. Um, I mean, I was thinking ahead to our to our VIPs, and he's got to be in that conversation. Uh, there's, I mean, there's really only two actors that get a chance to leave much of an impression on you in this movie because, you know, most of them just get slaughtered. Uh, there is Rudy Youngblood as Jaguar Paw, and there is Raul Trio as Zero Wolf, who's kind of the principal antagonist. Uh, and by the way, he gives us a potential segue at some point to one day talk about the movie Black Robe. Um uh, that would be a really, really fun one to
0: cover, maybe. But but day. actually, Simon, I would add Jonathan Brewer, who plays Blunted. He's really good.
1: I am surprised that none of you brought up Gerardo Taraseno, who is, I think, and I was going to talk about this among the things that I changed, so again, we are sort of skimming it, but I'll go into more detail later. But to me, he's the true villain of this movie. He's the one that that, you know, almost clubs him over the head and misses. He's the one that tortures the guys on the on the walk home. He's the one that is the psychopath, essentially, who just to me, that's a mesmerizing performance. I, I would, I would put him at the very top of the best performances in this movie, uh, and I think he he makes it, he makes the the, the evil deeds seem even more evil by it by his pure his facial reactions to me are priceless to things the way he can look bored as he's slitting a guy's throat or how he can just be studying the struggle of those guys when they're up on the cliff and about to fall over and he's just watching them as if he's he's just curious about human you know behavior is that will these guys have the willpower to make it through he finds the whole thing fascinating like it's it's all game to him
0: i didn't want to mention him because i was going to bring him up after the break but i feel like maybe we should cut the break soon
2: yeah, we we should do that. There's one last little bit of trivia. I just want to point out. I don't know if you guys noticed this. Uh, I'm, and I'm not saying this as a serious criticism or anything. I just think that it's funny. Uh, I'm gonna read you the male character names: Jaguar Paw, Seven, Blunted, Flint Sky, Turtles Run, Curl Nose, Smoke Frog. Great names. Uh, here's the female character names: Wife, Young Woman, and Mother-in-Law. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they're Skyflower. That's true. (laughs) I I just thought that was funny.
1: It it is kind of funny. Uh, All right. Well, I guess on that note, we will take a quick break. We will be back in in a bit. Here's another clip from Apocalypto. All right, that was another clip from Mel Gibson's *Apocalypto*. Uh, we are at the portion of the podcast where we ask our five questions. Maybe we'll be able to dive a little bit deeper into this film. Uh, but we always like to start things off positive. So, Simon, what is your favorite scene from *Apocalypto*?
2: I have to say, um, I don't mean this as a diss on Mel Gibson, uh, but the uh, the scene where the the scene of prophecy feels like it was ghost directed by peak era Sam Raimi. Like (laughs) that scene fucking rocks. It's so creepy. It is so unsettling. The actor is so good. The staging is perfect. Uh that to me that was that was really when I sat up and was like, okay, now now we're cooking with gas.
0: You talk about the scene with the little
1: girl? Yes. I think it's the one shot that f- follows her when she's looking at Rudy Youngblood's Jaguar paw and she's following him over the shoulders, like around this, the guy in the camera. So it, it, it it follows her gaze. It's the creepiest mm-hmm. stare into the camera as she never breaks breaks her stare with him as he's walking along and the camera just sort of goes okay. from shoulder to shoulder to this guy. And,
2: and I love the way that she's introduced as being, you know, the... A, a a carrier of disease. So she's kind of kept at a remove and she seems just weak and pitiful and sad. Mm-hmm. And that just makes, and and the, and the then the way that, that curdles into what it does is, ah, oh, uh, that is wonderful, wonderful filmmaking.
1: Yeah. It's a very, I, that, that's what kicks the movie right into gear. I think that's where the movie goes to another level because up until that point we had just sort of seen, I don't want to say standard, but it's it's a well done, but pretty ordinary. These are your, you know, people in the forest and some bad people have attacked them and attacked their village. Like the village attack scene has some brutal stuff in it, but the movie hasn't kicked into gear uh, artistically. Let's put it that way quite yet. Yeah. And and that's the scene where it does. And then things start getting a little bit more odd from then, then on out. Um, I, my favorite scene, uh, I want to talk about this was the entrance into the city. So, Rick, you talk about this being sort of a historic, like historical epic in some, at some points. I think that's where this is really evident. This is, this movie, it has a lot of spectacle in it. And I think that walk through the city is a big part of like, that is one gigantic spectacle, but it also illustrates, I think, Gibson's themes for the movie because, the way the city is set up, he structures it very carefully to show you the different strata of life. And now whether or not that was real, I, I'm not going to make any comment on that. It doesn't matter. I think it, it works for the themes of the movie where he shows the outskirts of the city being the very, very poor. These are the starving, the skinny. Um, they're, they're, they're diseased out there. Then he slowly makes his way into the less poor where you sort of get businesses. There's trading going on. Uh, there's factories set up where people are doing textiles where they're pounding the limestone and you move even further into the city and every every step they take towards the center of the city the citizens are getting wealthier and wealthier and more decadent and i think that these showing that the the rotting is coming from there but it's all done on this massive scale with actual sets that were built including the pyramids um and, and a cast of, I think he said in the commentary, there were about 700 people that he made yeah. look like were a cast of thousands. But do, it, yourself me, a do yourself a favor. Do yourself a
2: favor and don't think too hard about who Mel Gibson might think those people ruling society are. <laughs> oh, no.
1: See, I didn't read that.
2: <laughs> just don't think about it. Do not. Do not think about it. And you'll be I fine. I did
1: not think about that, and it would not ruin that scene for me. I, I love that scene, though. It's just, to me... It, like yes, it doesn't make any sense that these guys would be surprised that there's a massive big city here when they only lived like a day's run away. But I don't care about any of that stuff. I don't take this movie as literal. To me this is a, mm-hmm. a, a fever dream of a movie, and it is the people that want to pick it apart for all of its little like how would they not know a city was there when they were a day away? That you're missing the point. Um and I think that city is the biggest part, like the, the maddest part of the fever dream where it just bizarre things are happening and I like I say I think it 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 gets the themes of the movie across quite nicely Rick what about you what's your favorite scene
0: I would say my favorite scene is the start of the hunt so essentially they're about to let the prisoners go and they play this game in which they have to run and if they can make it to the cornfields they are supposed to let them go in that sequence of course Jaguar does make it to the cornfields and the son of the tribal chief and I do not remember I think it's first temple sacrifice right his son dies in that scene he's killed by Jaguar pod you know what I'm talking about yeah yeah yeah, yeah so I, yep. I love I love that scene because I love the like basically when his dad goes up to him and he's about to die and he says you know just get it over with whatever he lets him go type thing and I also like the fact that when he lets Jaguar run, he rips the necklace from his neck, which I believe was his dad's necklace. And I think symbolically that transforms his character because that's when he realizes that he can no longer fear them and he's got to actually not just run, but find a way to head back and save his wife and child. And I don't know, I just love that entire sequence and I love the just the way it's directed. And clearly there's a lot of suspense being built up because you know none of these dudes are actually going to make it alive except for Jaguar, but... Yeah, Mel Gibson, the way he stages the scenes, he still builds the suspense, so you're at the edge of your seat wondering who will survive and who won't survive. Um, because also, the other guy who I really like does die in that scene, and that's blunted.
1: But he helps. He helps, yeah. yeah and, that, and I think that was a nice little moment for him, because earlier on, he, he was a, a great character. A, a good performance by that guy. I don't know if he was a great character so much as it was just a, a great performance put in by that guy. But... That, that, that scene has a lot going on in it. It's more than just... It's a, it's a nifty action set piece, but it's also got an emotional undercurrent.
0: And it also leads to him stumbling on the dead bodies, which explains the plague and why everyone's dying, because uh, I guess it's the water, right? Like, the water is what's killing everybody, because it's... It's a drought. It's a drought, and, right.
1: And they washed away... They, they, uh, they used up the loam from the earth, you know, growing the crops. There's only clay underneath. There was only a thin layer of loam on top. And uh, I think... I don't remember where I heard this. <laughs> this might've been from the commentary. At least that was their idea of how this, this city went down is that they used up all the loam and there was only clay underneath and they didn't understand like, all right. So switching gears here, Simon, if there was just one thing you could change about this, this movie, what would it be?
2: I don't like James Horner's score. I'm sorry. I don't like it. The, I th- there's the moments of it that I like. There's moments that I, I think in the scenes where he's where he's trying to build dread uh he's pretty good for the most part uh like the actual music for the reveal the reveal of of uh of the colonialists uh is great uh but in the in the in the chase scenes and in a lot of the scenes that have more raw violence uh and are really more like more akin to a a, a gritty genre film um Sometimes his score does pull me out of it where I just notice how ornate and like, I don't know, kind of throws in these signifiers of like of how we're supposed to think about this setting. But I don't know, it feels it, it kind of pulls me out of it a little bit because it's so constructed, whereas the movie is, is at that point feeling quite raw. Uh, so I don't know. I just I, I would have liked to have heard at least a, a different approach.
1: It's a score I don't really think about too much. In fact, I'm having a hard time even hearing the themes in my head. I, I know there's a lot of drums in this score, I, and especially during the chase. And I guess that's mostly what I'm thinking.
2: Well, of. and there's a lot of woodwinds because we're talking about Mr. Fucking Titanic here.
1: Of course, James Horner loves that stuff, and he had done Braveheart, so I can see they obviously had a working relationship. Um, yeah, I don't. I, it's odd. Like the movie has a lot of odd things. You're right, and then it's a very uh, smooth score. It's not raw at all. And I was going to ask you guys this during our last segment, but I didn't get a chance to. Sort of pretends. Did you ever feel like that his decision to shoot it digitally also contributed to that raw feeling at times?
2: Yes, absolutely.
1: Yeah. So it it has that feeling of a gritty kind of indie movie in its motion at times. And so I I can sort of see where you're coming from there. Uh, Rick, what what one thing? We already got a little bit of an illusion to this. What one thing would we would you change about Apocalypse Dove?
0: Well, no, I've, I've already stated what I would change earlier on in the podcast, so I'm not going to repeat myself, but I will say that I agree with Simon. I really don't like the score for the movie. It it draws too much attention to itself and distracts you from the actual movie. It's too Hollywood for, for what he's trying to go for here and doesn't usually match the actual action or what's happening on screen. So, not a big fan of the score. At least I... not for the movie. Like, listening to it, maybe. Sure. Like, yeah, but... For the actual movie, I would say about, like, half of it just doesn't work.
1: I, I usually remember James Horner scores. At least in my head, I can remember the notes. I can't remember anything from this one, so that says something about it, I guess. I did want to ask you, though, about the, the your change to the ending. What would you have done in place of that? What do you think would have been more a more powerful, like, have more of an impact at the end?
0: Well, like I said, it, it's too Hollywood. It's too happy ending. It's, it's like, for example, so she gives birth she didn't have to give birth right then and there. It's too coincidental. The fact that it rains, like why didn't it start raining earlier on? All of a sudden it gets flooded like within five minutes of screen time, which I know maybe like five minutes of screen time is really like five hours of their time, but still little things like that, the ship showing up, uh, maybe showing a, a shot of the ships earlier on. I don't know. There's just too much that happened in the last five, 10 minutes of that action hunt chase sequence which was too on the nose it was like they had a checklist and they're just trying to check off all the boxes to please a mass audience and i would have preferred a more gritty raw approach and and i don't know
2: my my runner-up for for a thing i would change would be i think there's a little too much dialogue in the first in that establishing 40 minutes or whatever there's mm-hmm. so much about the relationships that you could just completely infer just from what they're doing uh and still the characters are chatting 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 away which like i don't know is uh, uh, after the uh after the oracle that's not really a problem anymore but i did find it a bit a bit too chatty
0: i actually like that because it shows their way of life and how happy everyone was before they raided the village
1: it also allows gibson to get a lot of his his sense of humor out like you know I mean, obviously, the guy, the 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 elder giving those leaves to the to Blunt, um, Blunted, Blunted, yeah, something <laughs> stuff like that. It's uh, it, it gets Gibson's male humor out, which he loves in his movie. Every one of his movies includes stuff like that. Um, the one thing I would change is what I alluded to with the you know the the performance, I would have changed Middle Eye to be the main the movie's main villain over Zero Wolf. I think not changing their characters and have them all be who they are, but have the focus I, I thought that the main antagonist of this, the person who really went after Rudy Youngblood's Jaguar Paw, the, that really like was a thorn in his side and or constantly like twisting the knife was Middle Eye. Yeah. And that should have been the last guy to die. I think it would, the, the ending would have had a little bit more of an impact if it was middle eye that gets mm-hmm. outsmarted in the end by by Jaguar Paw and falls for the booby trap because you know, he's I, the I, one that looked down on him as a nothing, a nobody. Yeah.
2: I think you're right because when um when he does after um after the the, the guy you're talking about after he's gone Then he has the showdown with Zero Wolf, and it kind of feels superfluous. Mm -hmm. Because
1: there's nothing between those two.
2: It's like, oh, he's just the leader. Like, I understand he's like the final boss of the movie, literally. (laughs) And he looks the coolest. Like, I get that. He looks the coolest. He's the biggest. He's got the most imposing presence. It makes sense. He's the alpha or whatever. I mean, literally Zero Wolf. Um, Not subtle there. But it, but it does kind of feel like oh like this it's like it, it's like uh, when you're playing a video game and there's like you think you have beat the boss but there's a secret boss that's bigger like and you you're know, like who is
1: this boss. guy and where did he come from <laughs> yeah I, I I mean I get Zero Wolf had a reason to be there his son was killed by Jaguar Paw like okay good he's he's there but he didn't have a relationship with Jaguar Paw throughout the whole movie like Middle Eye did Middle Eye fucked with Jaguar Paw a lot and. Yeah, that, that should have been your guy that at the end, through all the, you know, looking down on him and, and thinking he was a bug for you to squash, um, to have him be beaten by the booby trap in the end would have been perfect, I think. And I, had they just done a little switcheroo with those two, that I think would have made the ending a little, even more satisfying for me. I mean, I do kind of, I do like when he smacks him in the head and the blood is squirting out of his head. I guess. <laughs> but but at the same time, it doesn't have the 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 resonance I think that getting that booby trap uh, would have. Okay, uh, it looks like we've actually lost Rick due to some technical problems, so he will not be in the rest of the recording, unfortunately. So, Simon, it's up to you and I uh, to carry the the five questions all the way through. Yeah, the end.
2: I'm sorry, but while we were recording the questions, um, Ricky had a, a DUI, and uh, he said some stuff that where we. <laughs> we're 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 not proud of um
1: yeah he went uh... off on mayans about it's mayans that cause all the wars in this world yeah uh
2: Um, yeah anyway
1: Uh, all right so we're not gonna go there but what we are gonna ask for is the mvp of this movie simon who do you got i think you you already kind of mentioned it
2: Ricky has chimed in in text form to say that uh, this movie argues Jesus died on the cross for no reason because people suck and he should have let us rot. Uh, that is one interpretation of this film that I think is actually completely... Uh, I think I think that really could be Mel Gibson's point of view.
1: That people suck? Uh, he definitely likes to show that people suck. I mean, if The Passion of the Christ is full of nothing but people who suck, so... And, and really, Jesus, if you...
2: what an attention hog that guy was. <laughs>
1: I don't think I've ever seen the Romans look more like bastards than they have in, the, in, a, in a, than they do in that movie. Um, all right. So MVP, Simon, MVP. Uh, I'll got? go
2: with I'll go with Rudy Youngblood, you know, um, after I, I mean, after about the 45 minute mark or so, he's in like almost every frame of this movie that isn't uh, let's cut away to to the to the pit of death um where my where my wife and children are um, mm-hmm. that mean, i i could i could have maybe done with 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 uh when we were talking about stuff to change maybe a, a more maybe them. a more compelling either less of that or a more compelling trap a more compelling situation for them to be in that's not just sitting in a boring cave or a boring pit, <laughs> pit or whatever i just it's got a t- well I, I
1: think i think it's a well a
2: well right sure no. it's yeah it's it, it was just a little it, it wasn't very dynamic to watch um, but I mean, I do appreciate that they let her make an effort at one point. Uh, I
1: did wonder if she was going to sit there
2: like a lump the entire time.
1: Uh, I kept thinking like, my God, she's pregnant. And she keeps falling to the ground. What is that baby going to look like uh, when it comes out?
2: Yeah. Another thing to not think about, uh, but yeah, I'll stick with Rudy Youngblood because he's in so much of, uh, of what follows. And it's, it's just, I mean, I, I don't know how much was, uh, you know, stunt doubles, all that, all that shit. But it certainly seemed like a very physically demanding role. Um, And, uh, you know, that's that's a that's obviously a dimension of acting that people don't necessarily, you know, think too much about. I think it's it's a it's a bug. It's a you know, it's a bee in my bonnet when people are like, oh, acting is saying lines. like No, acting is all kinds of shit. Uh, And this is a great this movie is a great example of that because he does not have the most dialogue in this film, probably even of any character. Uh, But he but he is on screen a lot. His face. Has to do a lot of heavy lifting in this movie. And uh, I think he's great. He's he's charismatic and you, he, you know, you, you feel an emotional connection with him despite the fact that, you know, basically nothing about him, uh, which is really, really hard to do. And that's down to that's down to charisma and screen presence, mostly.
1: Yeah, he does a good job with that. And I, he was cast, obviously, uh, for his athleticism, because as Mel Gibson said in the commentary, like he was going to have to run a lot in this movie um which he does and he conveys all that he conveys a lot of things in in that running you know how tired he is um the desperation um not only to survive but to get back to save his wife because he knows the rain is coming there was an allusion to the rain earlier in the movie when they're being marched towards the city through the forest he hears some thunder off in the distance and and says please don't rain or something like that um you know he knew he had to get back for it to happen but no he does a, he does a great job i i have to give it to gibson uh because i just i think this movie is i know he it was co-written but i i think this is just ends up being a mel gibson movie and like i said i find i found him at least back in the at this time uh one of the most fascinating directors on the planet and uh watching this movie again made me just wish like all, all he was in the doghouse for a long time and I think we lost out on a lot. I understand why, by the way. But I, I we lost out on a lot of great movies, too. Or potentially great movies, I, I guess. Uh, he, his is a career that I would have liked to have seen blossom. But it just kind of like ran into a, a brick wall. He he ran himself into he a ran brick himself, wall. He, he sure did.
2: <laughs> it's uh, too
1: bad, too. And watching this movie, I just felt that that was one of the... At the end of the movie, all I could think of is I wish I had more Mel Gibson movies.
2: You wish um, you'd gotten Apocalypse 2.
1: <laughs> nice uh tell me you don't work for marketing
2: uh i do not um i did have a marketing job once that was a mistake anyway <laughs> so um... yeah, i gotta
1: give it to gibson i think that the i love his crane shots in this i love where he puts the camera in this this is not just he's not just going through the, the motions here you could tell he put a lot of thought and time into this um, he comes up with some very odd shots He, but he has a very clear way of depicting things too. I think the the Gibson probably learned a lot from George Miller as to how to stage an action sequence and make everything clear.
2: Yeah. I don't think the action is like, it's not the most lucid, um, coherent, followable action of any movie I've ever seen. I mean, part of it is just the fact that so much of it is in the jungle where it's difficult to distinguish one area from another to like the untrained eye. So it, I find it kind of difficult. You don't have reference points to like really swing from. So it's tough to make really, really, really easy to follow action happen. I think he does a pretty good job for the most part. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think I think he gets he does the best with what he can. And, and there was a reason why he needed a wide open jungle so that you could at least see the action at all. Uh mm. which is why they didn't shoot where the mayans lived. They they shot, you know, in I think in the uh, northern part of Mexico closer to where the aztecs lived just simply because the jungles actually had you could, you could actually see. It, um, it would be kind to- of
2: funny if uh if Braveheart style he decided that the only actor who could uh who could handle Jaguar paw's uh kinetic charm would be Mel Gibson. Would be Mel Gibson. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> he could have Charlton and hestoned it up man he, he totally
2: he, he he i wonder if he if he considered it
1: <laughs> there's no way but that would be funny um <laughs> well he did play jesus briefly in the passion of the christ well his foot did anyway mm. but he did insert himself in there uh, even though you never see his face uh, all right. So <laughs> moving on. this is the great movie question, Simon. I know it's one of your favorites. Uh, are there three great scenes and no bad ones? Is Apocalypto a Howard Hawks great movie?
2: I, you know what? I think you can actually talk about this one in terms of distinct scenes, uh, which I haven't felt for a while. I don't know that there's three great scenes. I think the Oracle scene is great. Um, I think that the, 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 the target practice scene is great. Um. And there's other scene there's other stuff that gets close. Um I really I actually really like this the the in the in the scene you mentioned there's some moments I really like like the um the sort of the unspoken exchange between uh is it Blunted and his mother-in-law?
1: Yes as they um, I was going to bring that up as they're being uh, he's being marched and she's freed.
2: Yeah, but but I was thinking well that but also I was thinking more of just you know, she's been tormenting him the entire run up to that and just the, the, the shift in their, the unspoken shift in their relationship. That's just a, a, I'm I'm glad he found time for that moment.
1: Yeah. That was an interesting relationship to actually expand upon. Uh, It it has set up and it has payoff. Uh, You know, she's, she's obviously nagging him at the very beginning, wanting a grandchild, which he can't make for whatever reason. And, and yet, there's an understanding between those two at the end that's kind of sad. And who knows what happened to her now? She's just set loose in that city. And I,
2: I do wonder, like, it's kind of funny to me this in the opening, we get this whole like sitcom setup of like uh, this kind of like goofy, goofy looking guy and his, and his young wife and, and her mother and all this, like, everyone's joshing him about not being able to, to, to you know, <laughs> to produce any children. And, and I, I really wonder, like, I, it's been a while since I read uh, anything about like the history of the development of of, um, of the family, you know, angles or whatever. Uh, but I I wonder if like was that really how like was that really their family structure? Like, did were, were they really that you know a- analogous to to the to the present day? I, I feel like I, I feel like probably not. Uh, yeah, but it, I mean, it works fine for the movie. Like like you're saying, it's not a historical document, but I did think it was kind of. Maybe, there might have been a missed opportunity there to showcase, like I don't know, like a really different w- way of family, but like maybe some of the same dynamics still show up or whatever. I don't know. Maybe it it, it was it was fine the way it was, but it's like maybe just an, another alley they could have they could have looked down.
1: And it wouldn't surprise me if like if Gibson intentionally created that family situation and that village dynamic based on what he finds to be an idealized sort of social structure versus the you know the social structure that was happening later on in the big city yeah Uh, i think he wanted to contrast those two ideas for what he likes not necessarily what actually not
2: not what those coastal elites in the big city say
1: (laughs) exactly with their pudgy little kids and their giant peacock headdresses
2: oh they really did a great job by the way casting the shish the shittiest looking kid they could to be that kid
1: <laughs> right. How would you like to be that kid? Though we're casting you purely because you look like a decadent little brat.
2: You look like a like you would love to watch dudes get their heads chopped off, an arterial <laughs> spray go down the stairs. Exactly. Uh,
1: for me, I think this does. I don't think that there's a bad scene in this movie. I think I, I I love so many scenes in this, including the ones that you mentioned and the one that I had brought up earlier. My favorite scene, which is the march through the city, but. Um, I guess I would say my least favorite scene is actually when the eclipse happens because it's so quick, mm. but it works. I can't say that it's a bad scene. It's just... Uh... and I, I know
2: deus ex machinas, by the way, that's another big one.
1: And again, that was prophecy, so yeah, yeah. I kind of am willing to... There's a mystical element to this movie that I'm willing to forgive some of the things that happened simply because of that. Um, but I, yeah, I, I do like... I like many, many scenes in this movie. Uh, I, I like this movie pretty much all the way through. I do like the setup with everybody. Uh, it get, helps you get to know the tribe and you start to feel comfortable. And I think those emotional connections pay off later on. Because Gibson loves to show close-ups of everybody, even of extras. So if you're an extra in a Mel Gibson movie, like you might get a nice, big, fat close-up in, in the uh, final film.
2: You know and... what I was wondering was, like, what was the budget allocation for different parts of the movie? when you're when you get to the city sequence or whatever you want to call it um and you see just how many fucking extras there are uh that's when you're oh wait this movie was made with money like actual money <laughs> yeah and then after that you kind of forget again because it's all just jungle with like four or five actors at a time maybe the occasional torch
1: i mean they they built that entire set and they had to have hundreds of makeup people applying makeup to to hundreds of extras so I, I mean, there's your money right there. That yeah, city is that's, obviously that's. I
2: think probably like thirty-five million for that, and five million for the rest of the movie. Something right, like
1: exactly. I am just think of all the 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 makeup and costumes that you have to to do for that, um, and to have that that city built in such a way that you can actually film through it as well. Yeah. Um, they did a fantastic job with that. Obviously, and you can see the money's all up there on the screen. You love to see the money on the screen. I do like to see the money on the screen. I like to be shown something that I haven't seen before. And I think that's one thing that Apocalypto really does is it shows me something on film that I had not seen before. Again, well, I don't it take it you something literal... on digital anyway. Yeah. I... Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> on screen. That's what yeah. I meant to say. Um, yeah. I, I think that to me is always exciting too. just whether or not this world is a true reflection of what actually happened. We know it's not in Gibson has admitted that it's not. It doesn't matter. I I am seeing something that I've never seen before, and I find that interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the money the money goes to that like you can it helps.
2: It, it's also easier to put the money towards that when there are no movie stars in your film.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I think have there been movie stars a movie star in this movie? And there are a couple of actors who get around, uh, yeah. including um, you know Middle Eye, like he, he, that guy's been around in, in Man on Fire and you know several other things. But they're very rare. Like, you're right. Most of them are completely unrecognizable. And even the the actors that, that have gotten around, they use prosthetic nose, for instance. Um, mm-hmm. Stuff like that to hide their hide their looks. For, uh, what is his name, Raul? Um, I can't remember. Raul Trujillo? Yeah. Yeah. He's got a big prosthetic nose on it, so he doesn't look quite the same. And, of course, he's dressed up in, in costume.
2: Yeah, you, you, you see him and you're like, I kind of recognize this dude, but something's off about him.
1: Yeah, yeah, he looks like an old coworker of mine actually. So that's that was the first thing I thought. Oh, wild. <laughs> uh, he looks dangerously close to what an old coworker is. He's a little taller but about the same mm-hmm. build and face. Um, very scary looking dude. But yeah, I think it, had you had a, a recognizable actor in this it would not have had the same effect. It would have it would have definitely taken away you needed to go with unknowns. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Um, so is there, Simon, is there a future for this movie? Do you think that, uh, well, Apocalypto, it seems like its its reputation has grown throughout time. It was not, it got mixed reviews when it first came out from critics and audiences, pretty much. Uh, it didn't. It wasn't a huge financial success or anything, especially after The Passion of the Christ, it just like blown away everybody's expectations mm-hmm. and made Mel Gibson suddenly a very, very, very rich man uh, and a, and a player. Apocalypto did not do that. Um, but it seems like it it has gotten, it's re- like I say, its reputation has increased over time.
2: I mean, I think he'll, uh, you know, it, every single review of any of his movies until the end of time are going to have an asterisk in them. They just mm-hmm. are uh, where there's, you know, stuff you need to talk about. But I still think, you know, he's made movies that I think people respect and will continue to respect. Uh, and some that are maybe that maybe don't hold up as well over time. And maybe maybe don't uh, who's to say. But uh, I mean, personally, I can never take Braveheart seriously again after the Stuart Lee routine about uh, William Wallace, uh, which I won't. I won't try to repeat here, but you can uh, feel free to Google it and please do. Um, but I, 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 you know, I, th- I think, uh, I, yeah, I think I think there's enough, you know. The subject matter and delivery of his of the films that he directed are sufficiently separable from Mel Gibson, the guy that I think people will still find ways to enjoy the films like, you know, some some people are so inseparable from their art that it it it's really tough. Like, you know, Woody Allen, for instance, is like the classic example. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think uh, I think it's not as big a deal with with uh, with with crazy Mel.
1: Yeah, I think Hacksaw Ridge kind of showed that that was the most distant. I think he's been from the movie that he was making, um, and it, it's also one of the ones that I liked. I, I liked it, but I liked it probably among the least of which I've liked. Uh, which says something. I like when Mel goes all in on on his movies. Uh, I, I that to me is interesting. I think his his movies will hold up because he to me he has a unique visual style. Rick had brought it up briefly before he left. It was the slow motion stuff, and he didn't really Mm. like that. He didn't understand why he was doing a lot of slow motion. Mel Gibson does a ton of slow motion. (laughs) A ton. He loves slow motion. Uh, It's not quite to the, you know, Zack Snyder or Wachowski brothers like slow motion, but Gibson does love it. But he also, there's something about his visuals that really grabbed me and his way of cutting from shot to shot. Um, I really, really like so for me, I'll always go see his movies if for nothing else than the aesthetics.
2: You know, uh, I, I, speaking of the aesthetics, I do kind of, another thing where it, the movie kind of feels slightly half-assed, to be honest, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't think it's, I don't think it's uh, like, uh, I think they, they they did what they meant to do, but uh, I almost wished it leaned more digital. Like, I, I it, it felt like they, uh, there are sequences where you, you can really feel like in terms of the blur when people are running and shit like that. Yes. Um, you where where you really feel how digital it is, and you kind of get into that Michael Mann territory. Um, I thought bit, that was yeah. I I thought that was really interesting. And then, but the rest of the time, I sometimes I I kind of felt like they were hiding from the digital feeling in sort of the in the more epic sequences or whatever. And maybe some of that was shot on film. I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, it's um, it's I I kind of wish they they they'd. they'd, they'd I, th- I think it would the film would age even better if they just really embraced that aspect a little
1: bit more so if i if I remember right I think the decision to go digital was a budgetary one oh, and yeah and also makes sense. also because of some of the shots that they were trying to pull off i believe it was too hot Gibson said for the cameras and certain spots that they were trying to shoot and they were having problems with the with the film cameras and so they were able to pull them off. With a digital camera much easier. And things like the waterfall shot, I think that was made easier by the digital camera. Oh, yeah. Um, This movie must
2: have been a fucking blast to make, by the way. It looks (laughs) like it was super fun.
1: There's a bunch of interesting little tidbits. You know, when they're crossing the river, for instance. I was wondering, in my mind, I'm thinking, how the hell are they standing there? That water would be bowling them over at this point. They're up to their shoulders in a raging rapids. And, you know, on the commentary, Gibson explained how that actually the river really wasn't that fast. They added a bunch of rocks in to make it look like it was actually Uh, faster than it was. And then they dug a trench to have the actors make it look like it was that deep.
2: Oh, that's it's like I see. Yeah, you got to love that shit.
1: Yeah, that to me, that's great filmmaking stuff. Just trying to solve a problem. Um,
2: It's uh, it's also worth noting uh, for all you um, practical effects fetishists out there that uh he he really does seem to want to go practical as much as possible um so you know when when there's skull spray, it's like it's real fake blood you know um, yeah
1: and, and beating hearts and all <laughs> yeah it's uh
2: it, it gets gnarly and it's and and some and in some of those scenes it really does feel like um like old school, exploitation when there's just like organs spilling out and human <clears throat> sacrifice and it, it does get it gets a little cannibal holocaust at times
1: bodies just tumbling down the steps
2: yeah whole whole like fields of bodies just like rotting away in the ground as it's, yeah, it's it's grim stuff
1: you'll know right away at the beginning of this movie whether or not you can handle it when the guy bites into a tapir tex- testicles because gibson doesn't hold back on any of the squish the squirt slime, nothing. The skin.
2: He loves that. He lives for the
1: slime. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's all right there, and this guy's putting it in his mouth and taking a huge chomp out of it. So if you can handle that, you could probably handle the rest of the stuff that's coming your way, which will be much more bloody. Uh, but nevertheless, it's brutal. It's You know what's interesting on the commentary is listening to what Gibson cut out that was too brutal for even him. Um, I don't know if you remember this shot of a, uh, during the raid where a woman has her baby taken away from her. Yeah. Mm. And uh, the soldier that's taking it away is holding it by the leg and shaking yes. it by the leg. And it's nasty, right? Well, during the commentary, Gibson stops there. And he's like, um, there was a lot more to that. We had to get rid of it.
2: Oh, <laughs> was... God. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Because is it, when it picks up that baby, you're like, oh. Fuck! Jesus yeah. Christ!
1: Yeah, <laughs> I think they made the right decision there. It, it sounded like he he saw it himself on screen. He was like, "Yeah, we're not we're not putting this in the movie." <laughs> oh,
2: jeez! Yeah, let, let's honestly. I hope that was destroyed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: He has a tendency for cruelty, though. So uh, I've always I recommend this movie to people, but there is cruelty, a lot of cruelty in Mel Gibson movies. So you got to be prepared for that. <laughs> But uh, with that I note, I think we should probably wrap things up here. Uh, Rick is not here to tell us where the podcast, you can find the podcast, but of course you can find it on Goombastomp.com and Apple Tunes, or sorry, iTunes, Apple, tunes. Apple tunes, yes, exactly. <laughs> all the normal stuff. Uh, go to SortedCinema.com, of course. That is the best place to find the Sorted Cinema podcast, and you can also check out all of our movie coverage there, festivals and movie reviews, things like that. Uh occasionally I am writing so I'm writing more movie reviews now, Simon. I'm i so I'm watching Yay. more movies. That's the best reason to do movie reviews again, is just so I get to get all the screeners yeah. and I can start oh, watching movies speaking again.
2: Speaking of watching movies, I'm on Letterboxd to Sucker Howl. Everyone go back and rewatch Kong Skull Island, because that movie fucking rocks. I, I rewatched that last week and it was so much better than the new one. The new one was not good.
1: I am a hundred percent in agreement that everybody should watch Kong Skull Island.
2: Uh, that movie, it's it's more, it's actually more fun and more rollicking and like more exciting than you remember. And it, you probably remember it being pretty exciting. Anyway, that's I remember it, that's it
1: being plug for the week really fun. I gave that a, a great, great review. I loved that movie. Uh, I definitely would go back and rewatch it. I've watched it twice now, so I'm. I'll, but I haven't seen it in a few years. I'm definitely willing to check that one out. I was curious about the new one, and you say that it's no good. All right,
2: it's. I mean, it has its moments, but it's no, it's no Kong Skull Island. I'll tell you that. All right.
1: Well, unfortunately, next week, we're not going to be back with Kong Skull Island because we already did Kong Skull Island on this. Yeah.
2: Go of listen of to our Kong episode. Skull Island episode, which I hope I'm on. I think I am.
1: You are on that one. Yeah. Hey. Um, it's you and me. And I cannot remember who the third person was for that. It might have been Thomas who had just seen all the Kong movies.
2: Oh, yes. we are, We are told it was Thomas.
1: Yes, there we go. All right. (laughs) We're going to wrap things up. Now we can go into a whole second podcast about Kong Skull Island. Uh, uh, We will be back next week with a movie that is not Kong Skull Island. We'll see you then.